Let's pray and then we'll uh, start with the text. Our Father in God, we have, of course, gathered to celebrate the risen Christ and, and the covenant blessings that are bestowed on us in Him. As we look at your word, we pray that your spirit would challenge us, would mold us, and of course, send us into a world of injustice. May you, Lord Jesus, bring judgment where judgment is due, and may we be found full of faith and patience and integrity. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen. All right, James 5, look at verses 1 and 3. 1, 2, 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Note that word, coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. Like Amos says, you're going to come meet your God. That's uh, not a term of endearment. It is in the last days, note that, that you have stored up your treasure. So, the rich here are injustice-perpetuating non-believers with whom first-century Jewish Christians, Christians in general, who were in James's church, in James's context, they had to deal with these people. They had to deal with these rich, oppressive people. Um, they are, as a side note, they are probably the same rich that were rebuked in chapter 2, by the way. Probably not Christians, though there's debate. I'm assuming that he's not, given by what he says. These rich were those, of course, who had power and they had privilege, they had authority, they had status, not in a way of servitude or, or service towards others, but in a way of power and self-grabbing power. And, of course, the, these people are the same type of people who put Jesus to death. So here is the warning. The warning is clear. Miseries are coming upon you. All right? Um, Note that this is impending language. We're going to see that a few times in this passage. And note that it says coming upon you, second person plural in the Greek. He's talking to, to them, to the rich, these people. Now, their riches have consumed them, of course, like fire consumes wood. It's one thing to labor and have wealth. It's another thing to have wealth that owns you. There's a difference. Their wealth was rusted, it was moth-eaten, which is the same thing Jesus says in, in Matthew 6. So probably James remembers his brother's Sermon on the Mount. He probably remembers these things. So we're not dealing with Christians, we're dealing with, pa with pagans. Unrighteous, wealthy people. They have power, they have authority, but it's, it's the type of power and authority that's only known to rebellious men. That's the difference. Their first sin, we know, is poor stewardship. That's the first sin. Unjust gain for unjust means. When, when you have the power and you have the privilege, you can extort people. <laughs> you can take a little more from them on their tax return, that sort of thing. So these types of people, they obviously love their wealth more than anything. They love their money. They love, they love what they have more than life itself. And the impending misery that is going to be coming to them is the same present distress that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7.26. So give you some historical thing here. Remember, James, is he's writing to the church in the diaspora. He's writing to churches that would have received this letter. Um, many of them would have already had their scribes on it, copying it. This letter would have been sent to various places. And they're scattered about due to extenuating circumstances. 
So remember, after Pentecost, persecution led to the Christians moving about into the world, and they were spreading the gospel abroad. And this was all a precursor to the Roman-Jewish War of 66 through 70 AD. 70 AD is when Titus finally laid siege to Jerusalem, and it was a terrible, terrible thing. Millions died, the city was burnt, and it was just, it was not a, what you call a pleasant experience. (laughs) So persecution led Christians to go. James is writing to a church before AD 70, before the final end of the old covenant age. He's writing to them, and he says that the last days, these last days are their last days. Okay, just a reminder, don't automatically think and panic. We're in the end of time. Um, this is the last days. We're in the last days. That's a popular conclusion of dispensationalists and other pessimillennialists. Um, the last days he's talking about were the present distress, the, the events leading up to AD 70. The last days that will consume their treasures, the treasures of the rich, were the last days of what we call the Judaic Aeon. Um, this is the passing away of the old covenant heavens and earth, the old heavens and earth, and obviously then the new covenant, the new heavens and new earth, would then be standing on its own. So we have an overlap. They're, they're literally in the middle of Jesus Christ's judicial death on the cross to 40 years later, the end of the old covenant was fully and finally dealt with when, when Rome destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. That was God's final covenant sanction. Um, it was also a carom judgment they were devoted to destruction. It was the end of the old covenant, the Mosaic economy. So basically Rome came and burned everything to the ground. And all the things that were burned to the ground would be the rich, their stuff, their property. It was a devastating time. This, jo- this Roman Jewish war, and, and if you can uh, endure it, read through Josephus and his description of it, it was quite an economic disaster. Um, the Civil War in our country was, what, you had 600,000-ish, some more estimates, people who died. Um, economic, economically speaking, it, it would have been, a bi- like in our money today, billions and billions of dollars. So kind of superimpose that on the Jew- Jewish-Roman War, it would have been an absolute disaster of catastrophic proportions. So a side note, wealth we know is utterly worthless if it's not stewarded toward the ends of the kingdom of God. So we also know from scripture in places like Psalm 37, 16, Proverbs 13, 22, and Ecclesiastes 2, 26, that the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. So all this, all this wealth that we see happening, uh, that's for the righteous. It's ours. We just have to get it. And one of um, our favorite verses around here is when the Bible says, and they plundered the Egyptians. That's what we're doing. That's part of the Great Commission is plundering the Egyptians. So look at verses 4, 5, and 6. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. That basically means the omnipotent Lord. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. 
So this is obviously a prophetic denunciation. James charges them with a second sin. Not only are they failing at their stewardship, the second sin is they're, they're defrauding laborers. They're defrauding laborers. God's law in Leviticus 19.13 and also in Deuteronomy 24 requires immediate payment to workers after the day of labor. So it was just assumed that when you did work, you were to be paid. So, and of course, in that economy, it was literally a day's labor. You worked that day, and at the end of the day, um, you received payment for whatever the agreement was, by the way. So no, we don't, minimum wage laws are garbage. It's socialistic nonsense. Um, whatever's agreed upon, that's the payment. Um, Jesus, of course, he tells the parable uh, in the New Testament, kind of in line with that idea, where he paid the same to the guy who came late in the day, but it's his prerogative as called capitalism. Welcome. <laughs> so unjust rich, we know, defraud their workers by refusing payment. That's what James is charging them with. You haven't even followed through with the requirement of God's law. They were treating the poor as less than human. There were countless times in the Old Testament where the prophets warned against powerful, abusive leaders as well as um, other nations. Amos 4, Amos 6, Amos 7, um, Isaiah 3, Isaiah 5, Isaiah 8. I mean, Isaiah 13 through 27 is a whole section on this. Um, chapter 30, 33 through 35, Isaiah spends a lot of time examining this. Jeremiah has several passages. Jeremiah 20 is one of those. Um, Hosea 2, Micah 3. The prophets were very keen on understanding how God's law applied to economic productivity. And they would judge and bring denunciation to Israel and other nations for failing to follow God's law on this. So in keeping with this prophetic vision of covenantal sanctions, James defends the poor and he rebukes the sinful rich. Now, again, that's not a vacuum for an invitation for socialism. This is not what we're talking about. This is a denunciation for unrighteousness versus righteousness. And it just so happens that the way it goes with unrighteousness is the more money and power you have, the more oppression you, oppression you exert on those who can't. That is a normal paradigm for rebellious men. That's what, that's what sin does. All right, well, Jesus flips it on his head, of course, and we know that what does righteousness do for the wealthy? Righteous things, helping the poor, giving to those who can't do that, um, and helping others invest in business and productivity and towards the dominion mandate. That's what the beautiful vision of, of wealth is. But here it's the opposite of that. But these poor, they're crying out to God. God hears them. We know that. That's if you remember when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and God, they cried out and God heard them. Same, same idea he says here. And God, though, rejects, ultimately rejects and judges them. Now, a third sin. The, the third sin is brought up to the courtroom. Irresponsible wealth in general. Irresponsible wealth. They gave no regard to God and his kingdom. They lived luxuriously on the earth, living a life of wanton pleasure, James says. Um, like their vindictive behavior towards Jesus, he's the righteous one par excellence, right? He's the righteous one. But like that, they oppress and they condemn the righteous poor. They're killing the person, economically speaking. Uh, it's the same thing James said back in chapter 2. When we show favoritism by denying justice to the poor, 
Christians or those who are in positions of power, could be unbelievers too, they are killing the poor man because they're piling on oppression. So irresponsible wealth bereft of the kingdom leads to systemic injustice all the time. And I mean, it's just what we have in our country right now. The, the, the welfare system crippling, crippling our nation, crippling us um, in so many different ways. And the poor stay poor. The poor stay poor because there's no actual righteous cultivation of dominion. It's just oppression piled on oppression. So that's the third sin, irresponsibility with wealth. See, the problem is James sees it, and this is where we have to be careful. The problem here isn't political, right? The problem is moral. So morality then manifests itself in the realm of politics. But we can't go like Bernie, who wants to just, you know, or some of these other candidates, they just want to inject more money. Let's just print more money and put it into the economic pool, and it will be fine. (laughs) You haven't dealt with the problem. You haven't dealt with the morality, or rather immorality, that's holding up such a thing like the Federal Reserve. You don't have the categories for that. So you just think you're being benevolent. Uh, You know, isn't Bernie Sanders so great? Free college, free, free, free. He even waves his finger, free, free, free. And everybody's drinking it up like, yeah, free college. Nothing's free (laughs) except the grace of God. So that's the problem here. We're not dealing primarily with politics, but it does spill over into the political arena, the social arena. But it's moral. There's oppression and selfish gain that's fueled by an irresponsible acquisition, irresponsible management, and irresponsibly discharging your wealth and power. So if you have wealth and power, what's one thing you can do? You buy the best lawyers, and the law doesn't apply to you. I was just I was reading this morning. Maybe this is why I locked my keys in the, in the house. I was reading this morning um, some from Brent Allen Winder's book, The Excellence of the Common Law. It's like 900 pages, so you should get it, though. It's a good resource. But he was talking about the difference between administrative law, right? Administrative law was like the executive branch administering law and rules. So you have police, state, bureaucracy, all these government programs. And now the courts really don't have a role anymore. So common law is like essentially eradicated. But these are the paradigms, I think, that we can apply this text in in situations like this. Because we have people who can buck the system, big pharma, big food, you name it, all of them, they can buck the system, Justice is um, injustice is perpetuated, and who, who of us can stand up to them? None of us in this room that I know of has billions and billions of dollars in offshore accounts that you could you know, buy the best lawyer and circumvent the system. But that's the issue here. It's a moral issue. See, their, their irresponsibility in their day, like ours, James says, has fattened them for the day of slaughter, which was James's reference of A.D. 70. They had flattened, fattened themselves. They had gotten so much. They had gotten fattened for what? For the only goal or the end purpose of slaughter. Now, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You had in Israel early rains in October, November, late rains more toward like our springtime. You too, he says, be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. 
What do we do when facing injustice? Well, we're called to be patient, for one. We're called to be patient. God sorts injustice out in history, and the coming of the Lord, you should know, referenced here, is the impending judgment of the risen Christ against Jerusalem when his covenant presence would befall the city and consume it with absolute fire. This coming of the Lord is not the second coming. There's no category for that in first century readers. They understood the present distress. They understood the tumultuous times of what they were facing. This was this coming. This was the coming of the Lord. Now, like the farmer who prayerfully plants his crops for the glory of God and he awaits the rain, can't control the rain, so you have to wait. Completely out of his control, so too we are to prayerfully wait for the sovereign judge to vindicate us. So again, this coming of the Lord is not an eschatological pipe dream. It's a reality that Jesus told us about in the Olivet Discourse. Now, quick side comment. The, the coming, it's translated coming, the parousia is the Greek word. It shouldn't be really translated coming. I, I, I agree with Jürgen Moltmann on his view. He says, when you say coming, it implies absence. When you say coming, it's like, well, Jesus is far off, so he's going to come. It implies absence. But Jesus is not absent from the affairs of the world. Um, I think, and I agree with Jürgen, uh, and I think N.T. Wright sometimes says things in this arena too, but it should be translated a royal visit or royal presence. Whenever an emperor or a leader would come, you would usher them in the parousia, you would go out of the city and usher them in, and that was the royal visit, the royal presence. That, it's that idea. Jesus judges in history when he appears, and he appears through covenantal sanctions, right? We don't, we don't have to have Jesus on a physical chariot riding with Titus and the, as the Roman armies destroyed Jerusalem. Jesus is in that. He's already judicially involved with the sanction. So, because of all that, James's congregation is told they have to wait. They have to wait so that their hearts are going to be strengthened, so that they have hope in their eyes. Look at verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The judge is standing right at the door. Not only are we to be patient when facing injustice, we have to consider one another. Don't complain against one another. How many times have we heard this? <laughs> Don't complain against one another. The coming of the judge and his judgment is at the door, which is not 2,000 to 3,000 years away. If you text your friend and say, I'm, I'm close to your house, I'm almost at the door, you're not 2,000 miles away. So the looming judgment of Christ, we know, was only a generation away. So be patient, he says to them. Be, be encouraged. Be, don't complain. Stay vigilant when you're fighting injustice, when you're enduring these circumstances. And otherwise, you too are going to fall by the sword of Rome. The judge is at the door. Look at verses 10 and 11. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance, the steadfastness of Job, and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. See, facing injustice and suffering requires patience, and patience obviously requires some level of endurance. 
Um, children, who, who, if you struggle with being patient, you have a lot of endurance to learn, right? We have to always, and I'm not just picking on you because we adults have the same problem, FYI. We're just taller than you and have way more authority. But, <laughs> but we are all called to patience, which means we're called to endurance. So being steadfast like Job, if you remember his story, he was falsely accused by his superficial friends. To do that is a, is, is a mark of maturity, to, to endure that type of problem. So we know that we serve a God of compassion and mercy. So what, what sort of excuse do we have then to fail to endure? See, patience in the face of staunch injustice means recognizing, one, false peace requires judgment. Two, God's judgments are always good. So you don't get true peace without real justice. That's the issue. So note that. You'd never get true peace without true justice. And then verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear. That's taking an oath, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Not only must we be patient people, we're supposed to be honest people. If you want to face injustice, then be patient and keep your word. That's the admonition for Christians. Truth is never going to prevail in a culture until it prevails in the church. And right now we have a lot of false peace in our churches. A lot of false teaching. A lot of false, not only orthodoxy, but orthopraxy. Inaction. Perpetuating injustice by silence. So don't be like the rich and the pagan where there is an abundance of words and a short supply of truth. Swearing on the Bible does not make anyone an honest person. Swearing on a dead relative's grave doesn't somehow produce integrity in you. That's what James is arguing. Being an honest, direct person who follows through makes you an honest person. So see, oaths tend to... That's why he's criticizing oaths. That's why Jesus criticized oaths. Because oaths tend to weaken our obligation to speak the truth in all circumstances. So don't rely on them. We can sometimes say, I swear on the Holy Bible, and yet you do it as a means of covering, actually, lies or half-truths, if you will. In other words, be honest, be truthful. Why? Well, liars go to hell. So <laughs> be sure not to pile on a whole bunch of meaningless oaths on your way there. So let's, let's dig in and then we'll go from here. Chronological acquiescence. I'll explain that in a minute. Chronological acquiescence is a problem today just like it was a problem for Christians in the first century. Notice that James is attacking the mindset that one can somehow discharge himself from the obligation of obedience to God's law. Sure, the rich had already done that. They had already discharged themselves from responsibility to God, any, any responsibility to God, which we always expect from pagan worldviews. Right? We, we, we go talk to unbelievers, you, you know, showing up on a college campus or wherever, talking to somebody at work, whatever you're doing, and that person's a pagan. We don't expect them to be in obedience to God. We know that they're at a point of rebellion. We have to persuade them, but we, we already know where they're at. We, we know. Because we can judge a, fruit, judge a tree by its fruit, right? 
But what about Christians, though, who think their religious and moral responsibility to one another is forsaken or, or sacrificed on the altar of self? What do we do with that? Because that's a real thing. We, I mean, we have you know, ostensible Christians who think that the Democratic Party is the only party of socialism. <laughs> They're all socialists. <laughs> it's, there's just degrees to it. But what do we do in that situation when Christians are facing injustice and they're like on that side of it? That's the question. See, chronological acquiescence is the belief that time alters truth. Okay? Or that somehow as history unfolds, their obligation to obey God is altered with it. That's the chronological part. When we acquiesce to something, we are altering our belief on it. As time goes on, we alter our belief. That's a problem today. See, to acquiesce, we know is it, we're accepting something. We're accepting something as true, sometimes, though, with uncertainty because we're not sure. And this is because a lot of times of external circumstances, which is why I put the, ex, you know, the adjective chronological in front of it. As time goes on, man changes, and as man changes, so does his truth. Somebody, listen, you've seen it before, Right? when we talk about the arrogance flag and um, the deviancy we see happening around us, what is always said? It's 2019, get with the times. That's chronological acquiescence. This moral relativism erodes at society and, of course, in the face of injustice, we may be tempted to adopt the same erosion. We may be tempted to do that, which is why James moves from denouncing the rich to making sure Christians stay the course. He condemns these unjust, unjust people. But then what does he do? He turns his attention to the church and says, but you have an obligation now. You have to stay the course. See, moral relativism, I think, has reached its zenith in our post-enlightenment, postmodern culture. It's all over the place if you'd look. Western culture, we know, is slowly eroding under the sovereign judgment of God. He has given us over. And this can be seen largely in part, we know, of the deviancy of our age, abortion, homosexuality, the, the two sacraments of humanism. They are the obvious fruit on the idolatrous tree. But there are other fruits as well. Unjust wars. The rise of the police state. Right? Instead of police being a purely judicial, like sheriffs are supposed to be, a purely judicial um, branch of the courts, we have police who are representatives of the executive branch. So what happens? They pull you over and they shoot you. What do you think is going to happen? They're the judge, jury, and executioner. There's no fair trial. That's the difference between administrative law and common law. I'm doing some research because I'm supposed to be talking about it tomorrow with our friend Davis Tool David Toulis, by the way, on, on uh, Chattanooga Radio again. This is a huge, huge problem. Understanding the difference between common law, administrative law, understanding the difference between what the role of the police actually is. But that's just one example. We've talked about it before here, the drug war, um, brutality in the police, inflation and unsound money, um, centralized bureaucracies, uh, policies like the Patriot Act, Excessive taxation, the Federal Reserve, you name it. All of this stuff stems from idolatrous presuppositions about God and man. And all of it is what's perpetuating injustice that we see. 
They're all connected. And, and to James's point, this stuff requires money. Um, it requires backdoor politics. It requires you cooking the books, right? It requires crooked lobbyists, um, bloated machines, big pharma, big food, big politics, all of it. Oh, and it's also helpful when you have an unaccountable internal plunder service to boot. When it comes to systemic injustice, all we need to do is follow the money. For example, let's talk about this. Um, I had been doing some research on this not too long ago, the food industry. There are studies that are published about certain health benefits, about certain foods, GMOs, and so on. And these studies are funded, here's the shocker, by those who desire the certain outcome. Uh, I'll give you just one example. Well, two, actually. You know, the, the whole idea, Coca-Cola is so good for you. Drink it like the Christmas polar bears. And, <laughs> you know, and so you follow the money. Um, what about, of course, well, who's funding the study? The Coca-Cola, they're studying the funding. Um, they're funding the study. And then you go in instances, remember a couple years ago, um, the American Health Association, um, they put out a study regarding how coconut oil is terribly bad for you, right? And, and if, you, uh, if you, I forget the, the lady who wrote it, but it was a book called Feeding You Lies. And she was tracing that all of that was funded by the corn industry. <laughs> so obviously, they're, you know, they're, what do you believe? There's all these different fads, all these different diets, all these different foods. What's healthy? What's not healthy? It's like every five years we change our opinion on butter. Every, you know, and all this stuff that's out there. But if you want to find the injustice... If you want to find the idol, then you got to find the money. Now, I'm not trying to debate the merits of this or that food, but simply to make the, in, to, to simply make the incontrovertible observation that money is driving the injustice train. Um, when Bobby Kennedy was speaking a Thursday, he was pointing that out. Just the billions and billions of dollars that are invested in big pharma. It's unbelievable how much money. It's inconceivable. I think, it, didn't he say it was like one-fifth of the U.S. budget? Something like that, like 20%. That's how much the big pharma does. One, I mean, we trillions of dollar budget. It's insane. So money's driving the injustice train. And when under, unregenerate schemers, when they have the opportunity to pounce, of course they do. So irresponsible wealth bereft of the kingdom leads to systemic injustice. Look no further than the public school system, the welfare state. Exorbitant taxes that we pay day in and day out. You can't even go outside without having to pay a tax. I'm surprised we haven't taxed, well, we do tax the air. It's on your car. You get the picture. See, in light, in light of what we learn about James's warning against the rich, we can and must develop what I, what I believe is a prophetic imagination. Having a prophetic imagination means we have a proper eschatology. And I'm not talking about end-of-the-world apocalypticism. Prophetic imagination in the truest biblical sense is not the speculation of rapture enthusiasts, but rather the courage to stand and speak the truth of God's covenant law while confronting injustice. The courage to do that. This, this Vi event, they're, they're like talking about injustice. And Chris and I are like looking at each other like, but where do you get injustice? Like good presuppositionalists, right? How do you know? It's out there. Pay attention. See, when we participate in God's covenant economy, we are his prophetic church. 
and we are called to the task of preaching the gospel. But we know that the preaching of the gospel does not mean rehearsing the foundational principles, what the Bible calls the milk of the word, over and over again ad nauseum. Come to our church. We speak about grace every week. You don't know what that is yet? You haven't figured that out? Not that we don't need grace, but let's talk about the Federal Reserve. Why would we do that? Well, that's what we do around here. See, preaching the gospel means inherently confronting injustice. Confronting injustice requires confronting idols. Confronting idols requires a meticulous patience in exposing their harmful fruits, as well as obviously taking the axe to the root. But note the connection. You cannot understand and know the idols until you know the gospel. And you cannot know the injustice in that idolatry until you know the law of God and how it relates to the gospel of the kingdom of God. When we preach Jesus, we are preaching the law that he came to write upon our hearts. And only then are we able to preach against injustice. Now, James is telling us, of course, about the problems of the rich and the injustice that they're perpetuating. And in his own prophetic imagination, he denounces them. Now, I take this to mean that every, every church, the church at large, ought to be educating the masses, exposing evil, all sorts of evil at every turn. I think that's the duty of the prophet. I think that's the duty and responsibility of the church. So instead of obviously hiding behind four walls of a multi-million dollar building, we ought to be laboring every day. We ought to be contending for the truth of the, in the world. That's prophetic imagination. And prophetic imagination takes on all sorts of things, right? All sorts of roles. You can have prophetic imagination in your home while you're teaching your kids to read. You can have prophetic imagination on the streets. You can have prophetic, prophetic imagination as you engage people on Facebook. Prophetic imagination is everywhere. But even so, there's more to the task. In our contending for the truth, we appeal to God, crying out to Him, knowing that He will hear us like He heard the Israelites in Egypt. But, but that's not all. The Bible tells us to be patient while we're in this holding pattern, waiting for vindication. We're... we're <laughs> If there ever was a David and Goliath situation, it is what we have going on. Christianity versus our nation. So, but we're supposed to endure. We're supposed to have steadfastness like Job. And the reason James tells us to endure is because there's a temptation for us to want to quit. I think a lot of reasons Christians don't speak up is either not only are they ignorant of the issues, but they don't think they can make any impact. As if the Spirit of God isn't active. Facing injustice, and we're talking about real-time, life-threatening persecution, requires a steadfast trust in the Lord. I think part of the reason the church, by and large, is silent on things, especially like abortion, is because the persecution isn't them. They're not the ones suffering at the hands of a vacuum and some forceps. Persecution is a real thing. But we have to have steadfastness in the fight. And you're going to want to acquiesce to the spirit of the age. It may be a reluctant acquiescence, but it's an acquiescence nonetheless. Don't do this, James says. Don't fall into the trap of self-pity. Don't default to the thinking that the immediate presence of opposition means that you need to shave off the hard parts of the truth-telling. 
if truth is going to win the day, our prophets, the church, has to endure the wrath of those who would prefer the comfort of their own self-delusional idolatry. Prophetic imagination requires endurance and it requires honesty. James says, let your yes be taken to be yes and your no be taken to be no. We must not be the type of people who can't be read by others. Don't make it difficult to someone know, for someone to know what you're thinking and feeling. Don't be an enigma. Don't multiply words, but this doesn't mean we should withhold our words either. Remember the tongue problem James has already warned us about. Prophetic teaching requires a prophetic tongue, and a prophetic tongue requires integrity. That's what James is insisting on. We are oath keepers, right? We are oath bound. Um, we are covenantally obligated, sanctioned distributors. That's what prophets are. When we came to Christ through the Spirit's masterful plan of divine re regeneration, and when baptism was placed on you, that was the moment the oath of Christ was made your oath. You are His, He is yours. And that is the fuel for prophetic fire. So, let's wrap it up. What must we do when facing injustice? We must fight it. We must gain wealth for the kingdom. We need more Reconstructionist billionaires. So, it's not wrong to try to become one. We must endure. We must cry out to God. We must be truth tellers. We must be oath keepers. That's James's point. We must be full of integrity, tenacious for the truth, and have the prophetic courage to stand on the promises of the gospel, making it wildly known that injustice will not prevail. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that your brother James wrote these words. They're a wonderful testament to, to applying these principles to our day. I pray, God, that we would have courage. That we, though we feel like a small army, um, that we would be people of truth, people of endurance, people of courage. So we ask for your help as we do that, as we live for your glory, for your kingdom. We want Cross and Crown Church to be chasing after the kingdom of God in every area of life. So we pray for your help. We pray for doors to open. We pray for doors to close. God, whatever it is, we want to serve you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.